and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Today's guest is Dr. Max Sherman. Max Sherman is a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory with over 30 years of experience in the building physics. He has a PhD in physics from Berkeley and as an international expert in air leakage, HVAC, indoor air quality, infiltration, moisture, energy efficiency, and related topics. He's a highly regarded member of the ASHRAE, having served on the board of directors and many technical positions, and is currently a distinguished lecturer. He is a recipient of ASHRAE's Exceptional Service Award and ASHRAE's Highest Technical Award as the Holiday Distinguished Fellow. He has also been elected a Fellow of the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISEAC, and he presents the uh, the United States represents the United States on the International Energy Agency tasks such as air infiltration and ventilation center. He serves on national and international committees and editorial boards, and does outside consulting as well. And we've got a little intro music for Dr. Sherman. You take mass and give it velocity. Keep talking, whoa, keep talking. Then you get momentum. Oh, I love equations. Another thing to know is momentum is conserved. In every situation, even in a car collision, momentum. Go, 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 go. F equals M A and impulse is F times T. Momentum, momentum. Change in momentum equals impulse C. 
We've got a, a, those little good intros. Another clip from uh, the archives of the Z-Man. Okay, Dr. Sherman, do we have you on the line? Hi, Joe. Hello. All right, we've got you. Hey, let's let's start out with a little on physics. How, how did you get interested in physics? Well, as a, as a kid, I was always interested in science. It might have been, you know, sort of the moonshot of the 60s, but I always knew I was going to be a scientist of some sort. Uh, as an undergraduate at UCLA, I majored in both physics and chemistry because I couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, but eventually I decided that physics was the way to go, and I, I went off to Berkeley to become a physicist. And did you go straight from Berkeley to Lawrence Berkeley Lab? I did. The, the, <clears throat> the two places are, in fact, <clears throat> right next to each other. So I did my graduate work as a student at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab and then stayed on as, uh, as a real person once I got hired. I see. And, and once you got there, is that when you started evolving more into the indoor air quality side of things, or is that something more recent? Well, that, that, that was an indirect path. I, I started off in energy efficiency. Uh, Art Rosenfeld, my, my advisor, uh, came to the graduate class, as all the professors do in physics, to try to get students to work for them. And he, he had... Uh, the attractive story of telling us that the engineers had messed up this whole energy efficiency stuff since the oil crisis and that scientists were going to have to get involved to sort of straighten it out. So I, I went to work for him and I started to work in, um, in fact, air leakage was where I started, how to make buildings more airtight uh, and the physics behind all of that. Only later, after realizing that if buildings became more airtight, we were going to uh, need more ventilation, I, did I start to study IAQ. So that came a decade or so later. And how are we doing it with, with respect to not making the same mistakes we made back in the you know 70s and 80s when we were tightening up buildings after the energy crisis? Uh, in general, we're doing, we're doing better. We have um, a recognition that you, you need to supply a certain amount of air and you need to ventilate, you need to control the indoor air quality, and that you might still want to tighten up. In fact, you do want to tighten up to save energy, but you have to ventilate. So uh, several states uh, require mechanical ventilation in homes. Um, lots of countries around the world do as well. So we're doing a lot better than we were then. Okay. Let me, let me move on to... Um... A little bit about, a, I read, you know, obviously I, I prepped for the show, and let's start with this. How does your background in physics, and then, you know, people in general, their knowledge of physics, how does it help them better understand indoor air quality issues? Well, physics is, in a sense, the most fundamental and general uh, science. So what it, what it teaches one is how to approach problems where you don't know the answer. Uh, engineers know how to solve problems that they learned how to solve in, in school and, and that they go about doing that. When you don't quite understand the science of what's going on, you have to take a step back and try to figure out what it means. So what I do in my job as a physicist is look at these problems in a, far, in a more fundamental way to say what are the real issues, what do we have to learn, how, how, what research do we need to, to do, and then what are the guidelines that we can give the professionals in the field who are going to implement improvements and things. So learning about what contaminants matter, how much is okay, how to control them from a fundamental point of view is what is what I do in, in building physics. 
I noticed in preparing for the show, and it was really a learning process for me because um, you, you've done a lot of papers that do exactly what you just said and, and help us better uh, measure things. So, for instance, the the effects of indoor air quality, it's, you know, we can generalize and say, well, people are tired, they have a headache, etc. But you, you've done a lot of work in trying to actually develop models for uh, measuring these hard to measure things and then um, helping people make better decisions about which way to go. Like I noticed one was on um, measuring tightness of ductwork. Um, and that, that really opened my eyes a lot seeing, you know, uh, there were three different methods I believe that were used and how important is ductwork tightness with respect to, let's start with energy. Well, so that, that's an interesting story. Uh, we sort of stumbled upon that in the late 80s as being an important thing because we were developing what the blower door technology and we were using it a lot and then we would try all sorts of things and we would, uh, first thing we did in the 80s was we'd seal off the ductwork and measure the home with and without it and, and in some cases we found that a third of the leakage was in the ductwork itself. And then stop to think about, well, what does that mean? Because the ductwork has higher pressure, more highly conditioned air in it than the house as a whole. So if you're losing air out of um, your, your ducts, you're losing a lot more energy. Well, eventually we got somebody to pay attention to that, started doing some studies. We found out that uh, in the early 90s, the typical home wasted uh, 20 to 40 percent of its energy uh, just in the ductwork, that the energy that your air conditioner, furnace, heater, put into the ductwork, 20 to 40 percent didn't come out because of, uh, of the leakage. And so that was a, that was a huge thing. And in fact, it was the largest single thing you could do to improve your home was to tighten your, your ducts. So that was, the, that was the story that we started uh, telling people in the early 90s. And I guess it also mattered where they leaked, whether they leaked within the building enclosure or, you know, oftentimes ductwork goes outside of building enclosures. That's right. So in, in much of the sun belt, the ductwork goes completely outside in attics and crawl spaces so that you, you lose it completely. Uh, in other parts of the country, it may go through a basement, and depending on how, whether that basement is conditioned intentionally or not, you may get some of it back, you, you may not. Uh, another thing is that ductwork, especially return ductwork that's in attics, if it's leaking, uh, the attic during the summertime might be uh, 160, 180 degrees. So you're um, sucking in hot air. The first time I saw this was um, uh, a leaky home in Florida where it got hotter when you turned the air conditioner on uh, huh. because it was sucking in hotter air than the air conditioner could cool from the attic, and it took hours before the attic cooled down enough to cool the rest of the house. Hmm. That's interesting. Another article I noticed, it was actually an article, was... Um, I forget the exact title, but it, it had it was along the lines of what is in the air we breathe, and and I found that a very interesting article. In fact, I'm I'm hoping I can use that in the future for some training programs we do. Um, what is in the air we breathe? So, if if you start from the beginning, the air we breathe is mostly nitrogen. Then it's got oxygen. Then the next uh, most common thing is is water humidity. Those are all normal things. Uh, but then there are a lot of trace, ingre uh, trace ingredients, contaminants, pollutants, low, low concentration things. 
thousands and thousands of chemicals are typically in the air we breathe. Most of them aren't at levels that are of any concern at all. The, 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 the trick in IAQ is to find out what are the things that are in the air we breathe that actually matter, the things that are a problem that we want to control. And we, we call those the contaminants of concern. And getting a handle on the contaminants of concern uh, is part of the trick of deciding how to control IAQ. And I, I noticed one of those, if not the largest, is, is a chemical I'm not very familiar with, and I don't think many indoor air quality people evaluate it. Is it and I may get the pronunciation wrong. Acrolein? Some people say acrolein, some people say acrolein. And that's uh, one of the studies that we did looked at the contaminants of concern in typical indoor air, and we found that particles were the biggest concern, uh, things like ozone, radon, secondhand smoke were concerns, formaldehyde was a concern. Acrolein popped up out of, out of nowhere as being concerned. Nobody thought of that one, or at least I didn't, uh, when we were coming in. And the, the, it's an interesting chemical. First of all, it is one of the chemicals used in World War I in the gas warfare phase. It, uh, it's, it's highly irritating, and it was used in chemical warfare. It's one of the few chemicals uh, of that era that isn't banned. There's, there's actually a world convention on uh, warfare that has banned certain chemicals from being used, and, and we, we see those talked about in Syria and other places. This one is not on the list, even though it's one of those chemicals, because it's naturally occurring. It happens uh, during, when you have incomplete combustion of, of fossil fuels of one kind or another. It, it can be produced naturally at low levels, and it turns out that it exists in low levels in people's homes, um, not enough to have the gas warfare kind of effects, but enough to, to have some health effects. And what, what type of health effect would we be, would, would be um, related to exposure to acrolein? Well, it, it's, a, it's an irritant so and a carcinogen, and so it can cause a chronic health effects you know, over a course of, of, of 20 years. Uh, it's, it, like formaldehyde, is an aldehyde, and they, ha- they tend to have carcinogenic effects. Interesting. And we had a, um, a, a speaker. We, we do an annual convention conference at Hidden or Seven Springs in, in Somerset, Pennsylvania, and we had uh, Dr. Jeff Siegel on, and that was one of the, you know, he, he did a presentation on, you know, what's what's most important about indoor environmental quality, what are some of the key issues, and that was one of the things he pointed out, that we really don't think enough about that particular uh, chemical in, in indoor environments, and, and I would assume he'd been reading a lot of the research that uh, you had done at, at Lawrence Berkeley on that. What, let's, let's, well, first let me get the Z-Man in here. Cliff, I'm sorry, I've kind of been... Uh, no, that's all right. That's all right. I, I think what I'd like to do perhaps is to shift over to, uh, you know, what are s- various control strategies uh, that can be used, uh, you know, to deal with indoor contaminants other than ventilation? Well, I like to say that dilution ventilation is the control strategy of last resort. It's, it's, uh, it, it can work on almost everything, but it's the least focused and the least specific. So in general, you want to apply other control strategies first and, and then ventilation last. But applying control strategies depends on what the contaminant is. Uh, obviously, the 
simplest control strategy is not to emit it in the first place. So that uh, if you've got combustion sources, for example, you just don't want to allow that stuff in the air if you can if you can help it. So you want to uh, use vented as opposed to unvented combustion. And, and when you have unvented combustion, uh, you want to try to use exhaust fans and hoods and things like that to capture as much as you can. Now, when when you talk about actual control strategies like air cleaning and and removal of the of the stuff, it depends on what the contaminant is. Uh, far and away, the easiest thing to remove from the indoor air is particles. That's a well-developed technology. Uh, particle filtration is out there and can be used, and that's fortunate because our research shows that uh, particles are probably the contaminant that has the the most impact on people's health spread over the population. So that filtering indoor air to get rid of uh, PM 2.5, the respirable particles, is uh, is probably the top air cleaning uh, thing one wants to do. When you move to the volatile organic compounds like formaldehyde and other things, it, the, the air cleaning becomes more complicated, uh, more expensive, uh, requires more maintenance, and so it, it may be harder to do. Let me, you were a chair of the ASHRAE 62.2 committee, and that's the um, residential uh, residential ventilation standard through ASHRAE. And just kind of going back to the question that, that Cliff just asked, and, and then your answer was that, you know, dilution ventilation was kind of the, the control of last resort. Does 62.2 um, specify any other types of controls? Because I know it's big on ventilation, but and I believe it's, there's both dilution and uh, source point ventilation, but can you talk to us a little bit about how that was developed and and um, how they cover other potential ways of uh, taking care of contaminants in homes? 62.2, the first version was 2003, and it kind of came out of an understanding in the late 90s that as houses were getting tighter, we really needed to, to ventilate. Uh, the, there's not a lot of highly specific uh, control strategies in 62.2 because it's, it's to supply that minimum ventilation. But there are control strategies such as requiring uh, exhaust fans in kitchens and bathrooms, requiring range hoods. As a matter of fact, the, the largest single thing uh, that 62.2 might have done is it requires range hoods that vent to the outside, that actually exhaust rather than uh, just what I call forehead greasers that recirculate um, air back into the into the kitchen. So that those are some of the biggest uh, control strategies. Now, soon in 62.2, which it isn't out yet, there will be a uh, a particle filtration requirement, or I should say, option that will allow you to reduce the ventilation rate if you have uh, particle filtration that meets certain criteria. So that, in a sense, that's the first real contaminant control piece of 62.2, but that isn't in it yet. It will be in the next year. Interesting, because that that was a question I hadn't written out, but I, I've heard, you know, we've had guests on that, that feel like if we just did better filtration of both particles and uh, and gases, that we would be able to reduce the ventilation rates and, of course, you know, save the money that, um, that we oftentimes throw out the, out the door or out the window or out the ventilation unit. 
Um, and it sounds like you're working toward that goal. What about with respect to uh, volatiles, VOCs, or semi-volatiles? Is there anything going to be changing in 62.2 with respect to those types of uh, contaminants? Uh, not, not that I'm aware of in the near term, but obviously in the longer term, the, the right thing to do is to have some sort of um, specification for how you deal with contaminants and allow people to have a mix of ventilation rates and air cleaning and source control things such that they meet a more performance-based spec, uh, and that would allow, in principle, lower ventilation rates. Now, we're, that's a research area. We're not quite there yet, but that's the direction I think things should go in the future, and I'm hoping that, that it does. This, this, since particles is the biggest single um, chunk of, of the contaminants we can identify, we've taken the first baby step or are about to take the first baby step there, but it'll be years before we can do all of those uh, other things because it, it'll probably require having um, reasonable cost sensors that you can have in, in people's homes to make sure that you've done what you said you're going to do in terms of contaminants. And w the technology for that isn't there yet. I see. And with respect to 62.2, before we, we move to, well, they're similar, all related issues, but with respect to 62.2, before the show, we had talked a little bit about where that has been you know, adopted into code, et cetera. Can you update listeners a little bit with respect to, you know, what states are doing what with respect to building code? Well, the, the, the state of Maine was the first one to adopt 62.2 uh, in, into its, its code, but the, the biggest adopter is the state of California, which uh, since their uh, 2008 code have required that new homes meet 62.2. So that's a, a, a huge chunk. Uh, there are other states that have uh, vent, uh, ventilation codes as well, Washington and Minnesota, uh, that are a little bit different from 622. Uh, and the, the other big user is the, weather, the, the weatherization, federal weatherization program requires that 622 be used as well, so that when you go in and tighten homes, you leave them in a way that's still considered safe. What and, about, uh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and there, there are people who are attempting to get 622 or pieces of it into IECC codes, but that's a political process. Of that was my you, you anticipated my next question. Um, how are we? How is that coming along? That, that seems like that's been a, a bigger challenge than getting some of the states to adopt it. Uh, it, it has been. Um, uh, there are various interests who have uh, all sorts of concerns, and that that fight goes on. I, I don't work too much in the in the code arena so I'm an observer not a an active participant but one can hope that as uh, enough states and organizations adopt it then the ICC will see fit to adopt it more more broadly but it's there's not a universal agreement that that's what they want to do and let's let's talk a little bit about just residential ventilation in general the, the types and amounts of uh, residential ventilation seem to a vary a great deal um, by the age of the home, the region of the country, um, and other variables. Is there good research to back up this perception of mine and others about residential ventilation that it varies as much as we think? Well, it, it, it does, of course, vary in the real world quite a bit. It varies by what the uh, type of home it is. It varies by the climate, how leaky the home is, how old it is. 
uh, and what the what the local traditions are. Um, I, I wouldn't say that the need for minimum ventilation itself varies too much. People are people, and contaminants are contaminants, and so you, the the minimum requirements don't vary all that much. But what the concerns that one might have uh, do vary. For example, obviously in a very cold climate, uh, when you ventilate, you pay a pretty big energy cost for doing it, and so you're going to have to pay more uh, to ventilate that way. In a very humid climate, you may need to dehumidify because the air that you're bringing in is, is too humid, and there would be a cost associated with that. But the actual diluting of the indoor contaminants, uh, VOCs and, and the others, doesn't change very much regionally. I, I guess I was looking at one of the papers that looked at a whole bunch of homes, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of homes and kind of evaluated their, their ventilation rates. And then I also noticed a paper that indicated that as homes age, the leakage goes up in the homes, not necessarily, you know, the, the unintended ventilation, I guess you could say, or the leakage. Is that accurate to say? And, and if so, what areas of the building enclosure seem to degrade the fastest or, or, you know, start leaking the fastest. Okay, so we're talking now not about ventilation, but we're talking about air tightness of, of homes, how, how leaky the homes are. And about every decade or so, we, uh, we do a survey of the data that's out there to, to see what leakage rates are in the country. And, and they do vary a, a huge amount. They vary by age and region and climate and all the things that you, you would expect it to do. Uh, more recently, we did a small study where we went back five or ten years later, uh, or we, we looked at homes that had measurements five or ten years later to see how leaky they were and to see what changed. And we did, in fact, find out that uh, homes get leakier as they age, which is not uh, a surprise. Uh, seals break down over time. Houses wiggle and move, earth shifts, earthquakes, wind, all sorts of things can do that. Uh, the study was small, so uh, I don't feel very confident saying I understand exactly the whys of that happening. It's, it's important, perhaps, for uh, energy modelers to realize that you're going to extrapolate what the uh, energy due to air leakage is over the lifetime of a house, which we may think is 30 years, that uh, its leakage during most of its life is going to be leakier than it was measured when it was new. So that, that's an important thing uh, for people like that, for that function to get done. Uh, it, that was a small study, and it's something we hope someday to be able to do in a larger instance, and then maybe I could tell you where the leakage is coming from, but right now I don't really know. Okay, that's fair enough. And and before we you know move on to more on leakage and other things, let's talk a little bit more about ventilation and, and the challenges of getting better ventilation in residential buildings. What are the biggest challenges? Well, it's not very hard to do in new construction. To, uh, there, there are pretty simple systems you can install to, to get it done. Uh, it's, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, exhaust fans. The simplest system to use may not always be the best, but the simplest system to use is simply to have uh, one of the exhaust fans from, let's say, the master bathroom be sized correctly and run 24-7. That will, be, that will meet 62.2. Now, you may want to do something fancier. You may want to use heat recovery ventilation to get more energy. 
you may want to distribute the air differently. You may want to do some value-added things like that. But it's not, it's not very hard to do. The basic things are to have exhaust fans in kitchens and baths and to have a total ventilation rate um, and a few other things. So that's, that's not really hard. There are more challenges when you want to do that to existing buildings where you may not have uh, fans, may not be able to easily install fans in certain places. Uh, but it's, uh, so the, fundamentally it's not that hard. There are institutional barriers to doing it. There are people who don't want to do it. It adds a few hundred dollars to the cost of a house, and that, that's going to be a barrier in some cases. Uh, th there are people who always do something one way and may not want to change the way they do things. So there's all the normal sort of uh, implementation barriers that one has in uh, newer technologies. I guess we've got to go to halftime in a moment, but before we do, I want to I want to ask about occupant control of their ventilation. What are your thoughts on giving occupants control of their own ventilation, and do you think that would work in you know most cases, or are people just not up to that challenge? Well, I think uh, you want to give occupants uh, control so that they can go above minimum ventilation rates because. Occupants are good sensors for uh, unacceptable odors or stuffiness, or they know when they're doing activities like cleaning, painting, or something that might require more ventilation. But we humans are not particularly good uh, sensors for the health impacts of air. We don't know whether we're being exposed to too high or too low levels of VOCs or particles. We can't sense that. So you want the minimum ventilation rate to be something the occupants don't have to worry about because they're not going to be very good at knowing whether or not they, they've got it. Just like you don't know whether the house that you're in is structurally sound for uh, earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, whatever the local um, issues are, you assume it, it does its job because you can't tell. You also can't tell if, if you're being exposed to some of those contaminants at levels that are unhealthy. So. You want, you want systems that will work uh, without having occupant intervention at the low level, but that the occupants can go above that should they deem the need. I see. I like that. All right, let's, uh, we're going to stop for halftime, thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back with the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Max Sherman, researcher at Lawrence Berkeley Labs. Uh, we'll be right back. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. 
Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Max Sherman from Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And, and you know, we, we were talking ventilation a lot in the first half. And um, there's another ventilation topic I want to get to in a moment, which is the range hood issue. I think that's a bigger issue than maybe people realized. And But before we do, um, there was I noticed somewhere the mention of a residential integrated ventilation energy controller. And, and I think that was actually, I picked that up on your uh, consulting website. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So that is a controller that can change the uh, speed of your ventilation system in, in real time. Uh, the basis of that idea is that uh, we do this dilution ventilation uh, to control the chronic um, exposure, the long-term exposure to these contaminants of concern. But that means sometimes you can be exposed higher and sometimes you can be exposed lower and it all comes out the same in, in the wash. Uh, that gives a certain kind of freedom that allows you to, to have smart ventilation. And so this, the, the RIVIC uh, system is really a, a first kind of implementation of what we more generically call smart ventilation, which is ventilating more at some times and less at others in order to optimize other things. For example, uh, if, uh, if it's a smoggy day outside, and you don't want to bring in air for a few hours because the outdoor air quality is bad, you could ventilate less then and more at other times, and it would still control the indoor contaminants to the same way, but it would reduce your exposure to outdoor contaminants. Or if you have a big difference in temperature between day and night, you can ventilate uh, more where it's less costly from an energy perspective and ventilate less when it's more costly from an energy perspective. So. This, this allows the designer another degree of freedom to either improve IAQ at, at the same energy or keep IAQ the same at lower uh, energy costs. So the, the RIVIC is one of those strategies for doing essentially that. It was, its specific target was the fact that in California we have an a electric peak load problem and that if you wanted to not run the ventilation system for, let's say, four hours a day when electricity costs were high, you could do that and uh, ventilate at a certain rate the other 20 hours. The occupants would never know the difference because they wouldn't be able to sense any change. They would not be exposed uh, overall to a different amount of contaminants, but would have saved peak power. Uh, and for that matter, in the summertime, you would have uh, ventilated when it was cheaper. So that's a particular implementation of smart ventilation. And is this an existing um, system, or is it uh, th something that has to be designed on a case-by-case -case basis? It doesn't exist as a product yet. We we did a proof-of-design uh, demonstration where we sort of created one and tested it and simulated it. Uh, I believe there are manufacturers out there who are looking to 
have smart ventilation products and are using the same kind of approaches to develop products, but there aren't really products that do it on the market yet. I see. So that that's something to watch for in the, in the near future, I would imagine. Yes, I, we, we hope so, because we think it's a win-win situation, both from an IAQ and energy and all these other aspects. It, it allows a lot more flexibility. It helps utilities, helps the energy, and uh, still maintains good IAQ. All right, let's let's move over to the range hood issue. Um, I noticed a good bit of information on that with within some of the research you've done. Let's start with a little background. Is there good information on the number of households that have a range hood uh, vent and and what type they have? Uh, I think there's reasonable information on how many have range hoods. Most do, in fact. It's it, the question is what kind they are, and there's less good information on that. It was, for a long time, code required you have a range hood, but not that it be uh, exhausted to outdoors if you had a window in the kitchen. And so there, there's lots of older homes that are built uh, with, that, with that style. As I said, in California, since, since the 2008 standards, you've been required to, to exhaust all the, the range hood outside, and we think that's a, a major improvement of 62.2 is is doing that. I don't have good statistics nationwide on what the breakdown of those two is. And have you evaluated how efficient existing range hoods are for those that do, let's say, go outside? How efficient are they at actually capturing the contaminants of concern and getting them out of the breathing zone? That, that's basically unknown. There are no uh, standards. There, are, there is no test method. There is no way of evaluating that in residential range hoods. That is, in fact, something we are working on right now, that is developing a test method so that you can test in the laboratory how, uh, what the capture efficiency is of, of a particular kind of range hood. Once that test method exists and once equipment can be rated using it, then standards like 62.2 or others could write specifications. But right now, there's really no way to know. We have measured a few in the field, anecdotally. Um, we see numbers anywhere from 50 to 80 percent um, uh, for the uh, capture efficiency. But we don't really have any idea of, of what's out there because nobody measures it. And what about um, recirculating hoods? Is there any benefit to those recirculating hoods at all? Well, is there any benefit? Yes, there's some benefit. They they do have some filters. They can capture some stuff, and if the filters are clean, uh, that's okay. But uh, they don't have a lot of benefit. It's much better just to uh, exhaust the stuff outdoors. You don't really know what it is. Uh, some, some of the contaminants from cooking are, are reactive organic compounds. That is, they haven't aged yet to be in some stable configuration, and they, they will highly react with other things and produce secondary and tertiary byproducts that we don't even have a good handle on. It's best simply to remove that stuff rather than try to figure out uh, what all is in it. And why is it, I mean, it seems like a task um, to get range hoods installed and, and to get people to use them. Why, why do you think that is? Well, the issue of installing is the issue of, of cost. It take, you, know, you have to install them. It takes time. It takes cost. And 
if nobody's making you do it and you don't realize it's important, then you'll do the cheapest, easiest thing. Uh, people often don't use their range hoods because uh, they're noisy and they don't like that. Uh, 62.2 dealt with that by actually having a sound requirement for range hoods so that they're not too noisy when you use them so that people uh, won't, won't have that barrier to, uh, to using them. So uh, I think there's some of it's educational. People don't realize how important it is to use them, so they don't. If, if, if it's not bothering them, then they assume it's okay. You know, I had um, we had guests on from CMU. They have a, a program that's kind of a you know research to practice kind of program where they take ideas in the lab and they they develop these products. And I've got one sitting on my desk. It's called the Spec Air Spec IAQ monitor, and it's a little particle counter that measures primarily in the one to three micrometer range. And I was surprised by. Um, what happens when my wife cooks because I don't have, you know, I have a window and I didn't have to put in a range hood and now you got me thinking here. Um, but it really kicks up pretty big when, uh, when she does cook, you know, the, the particle levels in uh, that my spec captures and it's not in the kitchen. It's in a room not too far from the kitchen. So I think it's, um, you know, a combination of things. And if people can, you know, it's, it's, it, when you've got that visualization, when you see the number and then you also see it go from good to, you know, elevated to very elevated, it, it helps me understand better. And I do this for a living. So I don't know if that, that will help as time goes on that we're going to have more inexpensive sensors and that people can get a better feel for what, what they're breathing. Um, hopefully that will help with getting them to understand the, the importance of these types of ventilation. Um, with respect to ventilation and range hoods, how are we? That you say that's in ASHRAE 62.2, um, and is that being adapted? I guess it's the same as the the standard in general. You got you know Maine and California and uh, some of the building um, energy programs that have adopted that. Any anything else that you want to mention there? In terms of adoption, well, I think I think the message is slowly spreading, so that I think there may be places that are slowly sort of adopting it. Uh, uh, what you measured is, is pretty much the case. Uh, cooking is the largest uh, probably source of indoor particle generation that, that, that people have. And, it's, and the particles may be uh, nasty particles too because they're, they're raw, unaged particles. So that, that, that should send a message to people who care, but a lot of people aren't aren't technical, so they don't know. I think, I think standards is the approach to this. If, if people have range hoods, they can use them. If they don't have range hoods, they obviously can't use them, and it's quite expensive to install them as a, as a retrofit. So uh, I always encourage uh, codes and standards to put that in, even if they're not going to adopt the full 62.2. And Cliff, I, I think you've got a follow-up. I do, I do. Uh, Dr. Sherman, what about the ones that downdraft? Um, you know, the, the, instead of um, you know, having the range hood up above, they actually downdraft and try to draw it out. It, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense to me. But, well, no, uh, there's, that, there's, 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 the physics is against those working. Uh, generally speaking, you have a hot plume coming from the cooking surface. It wants to rise. The downdraft wants to turn it around. 
The downdraft also doesn't have a capture hood to hold the stuff while it tries to, to suck it. So they don't work very well, but they can work because the flow rates are usually much, much higher than, than in a standard range hood. Uh, so you, you can, with 100 CFM of exhaust, get quite decent capture in a standard range hood. You'll capture virtually nothing with a 100 CFM downdraft. You're typically talking about three, four, five, six hundred CFM in in that configuration, and then and then they can capture uh, some stuff, but if it's too far away from the inlet, they still won't capture it. So they're not in general a very good um, technology. If if they suck hard enough, they can work okay, but then that's there's a pretty big energy penalty for for moving that much air. So. Uh, it's not a good solution if you're looking at efficient ways to capture the, the product. Right, and, and I, I think you know, some of them have grills and so on and so forth, you know, the older systems, and it's, uh, I guess it's it's kind of scary. Well, and you yeah. get a double penalty there because you're you're exhausting conditioned air uh, and you're, you're you know, using a, a blower or an electric to, to pull it out too, so I guess you get a double penalty there. That's right. It's not at all an energy-efficient way to achieve the desired effect. All right, let's let's talk a little bit about building, you know, air tightness in buildings because I know that's something you you've studied a lot, and, I, and we're running low on time. So I think I'll just kind of tell us a little bit about some of the key points that you've learned over the years with respect to air tightness in buildings. How can we do a better job of keeping our buildings airtight? Well, actually, I like to think that that we're we have that capability now. When, when I started all of this, roughly 1980, buildings were very leaky. We didn't know how to measure it. We didn't know what kind of leakage we wanted. We didn't know how to make buildings tight. Uh, it was, you know, undiscovered country, basically. But uh, since, since that time, uh, we've, we've learned a lot about how to make buildings uh, tighter. Uh, there are many implementation methods. There's many products out there. There's approaches from uh, ceiling, uh, air barriers. There's lots of ways to do it uh, that work. And pretty much we know how to make homes tight enough uh, with, with what are now conventional technologies. So I don't particularly see that there's a, a big research challenge in doing that. Uh, it's been more of a challenge in doing it in a retrofit situation, obviously. But in new construction, we know how to make them tight enough. Uh, there's no reason to get them too tight uh, in most climates. That is, it, it just makes things more difficult once you get things uh, past a certain tightness level. Uh, and understanding what the optimum is is something we could work a little bit on. But the technologies for making them tight are there. People know how to do it. And what about... Um with respect to the tightness, I mean, you know, the, the mantras, um, you know, uh, build it tight, ventilate right. And if you tighten it up, what are some of the drawbacks to, to tightening it up? Have you seen, like, moisture issues as a result? I mean, I know I did some work around here and tightened up everything, and the one or two areas that I missed, I, I was starting to see a little mold growth, actually, because we were pulling moist air in there, I assume. Uh, have you seen that type of thing as well? Uh, well, the, the, if you have a, a tight building and you don't ventilate it, you can get moisture buildup, and that's, that's going to be climate-specific as to how much you need to do that. 
the problems with being too tight uh, aren't usually moisture problems. You may have a problem where you all the air wound up going through the place that you missed and uh, caused condensation. So it wasn't so much that it was too tight, it was that you missed something, as would be my guess, but that's just a guess. And I need to add some ventilation as well. I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, a, a big part of it. Now, um, there's, there's a lot of programs out there for tightening up homes to improve energy efficiency. What are the, some of the key points we've learned from all this experience about, like, what works well and what doesn't? In terms of, you mean in terms of how to tighten up things? How to tighten things, and then, you know, yeah, let's start with that. Well, there are a variety of ways, but they're mostly pretty simple to tighten up things. You know, you've got your caulking guns, and uh, you basically go around sealing uh, the gaps and holes uh, as, as you find them. It, it seems that, you know, sort of a, 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 a mandate of effort will get you 25% savings has been sort of a rule of thumb uh, that I've had for, for a long time, and it seems to still be roughly true that you get that you can tighten up with some effort, about 25% in a retrofit environment. Obviously, if you have design, if you're talking about new construction, it can cost you nothing to build tighter homes. You just use better uh, better design to, to start with. Can you repeat that rule of thumb again? I didn't catch that, 25%. Uh, yeah, yeah, a day of effort can, can get you 25% uh, reduction in air, air leakage. I see. Okay, so a day of effort, and, and then uh, you get about a 25% reduction. All right, what about um, some emerging indoor air quality issues? What, what's Lawrence Berkeley looking at? What are you looking at? What are the emerging issues that, that people out there should be aware of? Well, uh, the, the range hood is definitely one that we're working hard on. It's, that's kind of uh, job one in terms of pollutant uh, control issues. We think there's, there's a lot of uh, potential there. Uh, Acrolein, as you mentioned, uh, nobody knew anything, about, thought anything about it and, until it came up in our study, and now people are looking in, in more detail to see what they find in houses, how to measure it, how to control it. Uh, so so that's, uh, that's an issue. Uh, there's always issues of new contaminants in the environment because it, as, as people find clever new products, they often have new VOCs associated with them that nobody knows the, the risks of them, and that's, that's an, ongoing, an ongoing issue. Um, 62.2 mostly deals with chronic uh, exposure issues. Uh, there's also uh, acute exposure issues. Uh, the worst, of course, are life-threatening, like carbon monoxide, but there are uh, less extreme acute issues that can, that can cause people problems. So those are some of the things that, that we're looking at. And more generally, as I said, moving towards a, a contaminant-based, a health-based description of indoor air uh, rather than just a ventilation-based standard is another direction we're going. And with respect to, I, I noticed one of the, you, were, you had a method for quantifying the acute health effects of residential non-biological exposure via inhalation. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that and, and where you're headed with that? I know it's kind of recent. Right. Well, that's, that's just, uh, that, that, as I mentioned, is looking at um, uh, acute exposures. So when you get deviations that are uh, for a short period of time, what does, that, what does that do to you? And that's a much more complicated thing to deal with 
um, than sort of the, the chronic exposures because it it sort of depends on uh, the, the, the the person. Uh, you know, there there are a lot more deaths, for example, during um, high excursions of outdoor ozone and, and particles, and it's not because. Uh, necessarily because the contaminants are themselves at an acute level that would cause that, it's because the population that was affected was already very fragile. They were already uh, weak from other things, and this was the um, uh, straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, uh, pushing uh, people over the edge into illness. So how you deal with that is a complicated thing, and how we should deal with that in order to what, what is our role as IAQ people to deal with that is, is a philosophical question. So we're, we have been nibbling around the edges of that. Uh, one of the things that we're doing is coming up with what we call IAQ metrics. So this is a way of quantifying indoor air quality in an objective way so that you, so the engineers can make trade-offs, a little more of this, a little less of that. How does that change the metric? Uh, as opposed to the more classic standards approach where each thing is treated independently and has a black and white uh, standards limit. And we will work on IAQ metrics both for the chronic case and eventually for the acute case, but uh, that's going to take a, a bit longer. Hmm. And what about, you know, I, I have a lot of indoor air quality, you know, building managers, we've got investigators, we've got remediators out there, and we've got... Uh, one of the top researchers in in the world here. Give give us a few tips on on things that you know we could do better with respect to helping people with their indoor air quality or their air tightness or their ventilation, whatever you want. Well, I think we we've talked about several of them. So uh, particles uh, are the thing which tends to give the biggest harm to people inside buildings. So whether or not it's required by code. I, I always suggest to people that they uh, want to consider adding good particle filtration to the indoor air. It's going to improve the quality, and it's not terribly expensive. Uh, source control is important, and we're talking about homes. The number one issue is going to be uh, cooking. And so having a good, uh, a good range hood is, is an important thing. And um, before we can rate them, I generally talk about what the, the criteria is for that, and that would be a uh, hood with a large capture volume so that as the stuff comes up, it, it gets caught. Of course, it has to be exhausted uh, to the outside, and if you want people to use it, make sure it's not too, too noisy. So that, that's the biggest single thing. Uh, having ventilation, got to have minimum ventilation. It doesn't matter whether people say it does or doesn't stink inside. That's not the, uh, the, the key criteria. So you, you want ventilation. It's probably uh, a good idea in climates that, in you know, severe climates, to have heat recovery ventilation, but that's more expensive. At the very least, you want to have continuous exhaust ventilation to make sure you meet the minimum requirement. So those are some of the things which, uh, you know, I tell everybody uh, who asks. And I, I know you've got you to run right at one before you do, and before we have a final word, uh, we unfortunately had a pioneer in the industry pass this week, and we want to 
we want to make sure we mentioned uh, Robert Bob Baker before we go and play some taps for Bob. Good friend, uh, good man, Ashray fellow as well, a distinguished lecturer. I don't know if he's a fellow, but uh, anyway, um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed or any final thoughts? Uh, only that I think uh, IAQ is a very important aspect of, uh, of our lives, and as we want to improve the quality of people's lives, we have to consider it. And uh, I think doing so it's both through minimum standards and through value-added approaches is, is going to be a, an excellent way to add uh, benefit to our society at large. And, and I think um, one of the things we didn't get to touch on, and I know you and others have, have done a lot of work on, is it, it, it saves money in the long run. In the long run, it, it saves money. Uh, a year of saving somebody, a year of somebody's life is, according to the people who know these things, about $160,000. So uh, if you can save a, a fraction of, of that through some IAQ, you have a lot of money to spend and still be called cost-effective. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Max Sherman. It's been a great interview. Um, before we go, folks, we want to stop and, and think for a moment about a good friend that unfortunately passed this week, uh, Robert Bob Baker. has been another IAQ Radio production. 